I'm Vanessa Warren. Here at Victorian Samplings, we're always on the watch for experts whose knowledge is grounded in hands-on making. We're eager to learn from people who have made things that can help us better understand the things Victorians made. In this episode, we speak to three highly creative people, food writer Ellie McCausland, textile artist Drew McKevitt, and moving panorama maker and performer Charlene Van Buchenhout. The insights they share will, we think, both engage your senses and inspire you to make something. Whether that will be a cheese tart, a textile, or a storytelling machine, we'll have to wait and see. Please stay with us. Uh, my name is Charlene Van Buchenhout. Hello, everyone. I'm a theater artist in Winnipeg, uh, Treaty One Territory, and I am here to talk about Craigies. Hello, Charlene Talshi. Thank you very much for agreeing to speak with me about your work as a moving panorama maker and performer. We're speaking today with your panorama, your cranky, as it's also known, on a table in between us. Could you tell me a little bit about it? Sure, yeah. My cranky is made in in wood, and it's got two little doors on the front that open up so you can see the screen. It's got a door on the back that's kind of like a drawbridge to fold down so that I can operate um, everything inside. And there's dowels sticking out the top that hold the scroll, which is mine is made of parchment and it's where the illustration lives. And the, the two dowels can manipulate to go forward and backwards for the storytelling. So what inspired you to begin making and performing with a moving panorama like this one, Charlene? A few years ago, I went to a puppet camp in New England and it was really exciting and I learned a lot of things. But right at the end of that adventure, one of the leaders came up to me and said, did you know that there is these amazing cranky artists going to be at a cranky festival in Winnipeg, where you're from? My mind blew up. I had no idea what a cranky was. First, what is a cranky? And I can't, Winnipeg has a cranky festival? Like I've never heard of this before. Um, so I went to the cranky festival and got to see what it was. And, and I couldn't believe the uh, serendipitous moment here that the cranky is a 19th century kind of invention or um, performance thing that you, they would use to tell stories in the 19th century because I worked at a, at a Victorian museum and these things came, came together and it was, it was so gorgeous to see the people at the Cranky Festival using their crankies. Mostly they used them for singing songs and kind of illustrating their music. And I saw the cranky and immediately thought that's for telling ghost stories. And I could not get the thought out of my head. It was September, uh, the Cranky Festival was in September and I got to work creating my own storytelling, Cranky, to tell ghost stories. And I, I think I made it on Christmas that year. I think I told my first Cranky ghost story. Um, I didn't actually make my own Cranky. My husband decided that was a fun project for him so that he made the Cranky box for me. And I um, set to work making the scroll. And the rest is history. I tell ghost stories uh, with it and um, some other things as well. Could you tell us a little bit about one of the stories you've told or retold using your cranky? Sure, yeah. Um, so one of the uh, ghost stories that I've told is The Sweeper, 
by A.M. Burridge, and it's about a an old rich lady who gets a companion, a young companion, to come and live with her in her house, in her big, giant kind of Victorian house. And every fall, the old lady gets kind of a sad look in her face, and they hear a sound outside, a sound that is bristly and methodical and sounds like sweeping. I don't know if I should tell the rest of the ghost story, but it is a ghost story, so you can maybe just imagine what what happens. But basically, I chose the ghost story because of its revelation aspect. So there's the way the story is told moves through the season, the fall season, which is really gorgeous. There's wind, so I can make beautiful uh, tree motion, and I could use colors, different colors on the cranky, and... And then the reveal of the ghost was kind of down a path, like it was kind of perfectly situated for a rolling screen. And I really thought that it worked so well that I, the next year I made two more ghost story crankies and then actually just started making crankies for other things as well and started expanding on that medium. Charlene, just to set the the kind of stage or the picture for people who may not have had the chance to attend a moving panorama or cranky show, I've had the chance to attend one performed by you, uh, which was very memorable. You are in a darkened room. You have the cranky box open. You've illuminated your moving pictures from behind with an oil lamp, and you're reading from the text. So it's kind of a wonderfully immersive experience, a lot of people all looking at an illuminated screen together. And what I'm wondering is, what do you illustrate or leave just exclusively in the oral realm? Yeah, that's a great question. So I look for images that I can actually make, first of all, because I'm not really a visual artist. I mean, I, I work now in this medium a lot, so I would, I would probably call myself more of a visual artist now, but I, I don't draw well. It's not a skill that I have always had. So I look for images that can be kind of expressionistic. So when I was talking about the wind and the movement of the trees, that I can actually really make those, make that movement and I can have it grow and change size and, and the, the images, I look for images in the story that can be shaped to support the imagination of the audience. So the audience seeing the images go roll by on the scroll can actually support the narration and help their imagination for the story. So I don't want to give them exactly, exactly the scenario in the story because I want them to use their imagination as well. That's what is so interesting about a ghost story because it's all about using your imagination. We don't want to see too much because it won't be scary otherwise. But the cranky scroll, because of the movement of it, you can really use it cinematically. So I can create close-ups. I can create a situation where we are looking at uh, more of a scenario where I have two characters in a place together and then immediately go to a close-up of uh, one of the characters who's going to tell a story or what the thoughts of one of the characters. I can even do um, just thoughts, something coming out of their mind, and I can show the picture of what's in their mind and maybe their thought about it without actually even having to say that part of the story. It's just kind of inferred in the in the visual. Or going the other way, I can, I can leave a, 
leave more space on the scroll for the narration to take over. That's wonderful uh, and very helpful for us. Could I ask you to talk a little bit about the momentum, like the motion? I know that cranky performers will pause at certain moments if they choose to, but maybe you could just talk about this idea of this kind of quite slow, steady movement that really defines this kind of storytelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very different from... um a television vision screen or a, a movie because that really commands your entire uh, attention and imagination. It, it's telling you what it wants you to imagine. But the the scroll and the, the, the movement with the cranky, because it's kind of a static image that is moving, it allows for more time for the audience to take in the visual and the narration and make up their own minds. It's moving. You don't have a lot of time to get bogged down in details. You just have enough time to kind of highlight certain certain aspects of the story. How do audiences react? I found it really interesting because I had never seen someone tell a story with a cranky before or have actually done it. It is a lot of uh, focus and attention for the performer because I am reading and turning the, the cranky scroll at the same time. And because I can see the scroll from behind, I can tell where I am in the story so I can speed up or I can slow down so I am on the same page as the audience. We're not we're in the same room. We're looking at the same thing. If it's going too fast, they know because I'm also telling the story at the same time. I really found for me as a performer that it was really, even though I'm so focused on what I'm doing, I'm not looking up at the audience to see their reaction. I can feel their attention though, and I can feel their focus. And it's really kind of a warm feeling. And, and at the end, I look up and everyone is just totally there and focused. And I find that so interesting in this kind of Things move so fast. Some of our culture that we consume is very fast and little tiny bites. And asking an audience to slow down and take in this kind of slow medium is a lot these days. But I think because you're giving them something to hear, imagine, and watch, that it's a lot easier for people to give that attention because they've got a lot of things going on. They can they can look at something, they can listen to something, and they can imagine something at the same time. So it's giving giving that kind of attention to the slow medium, I think, really helps attention spans. Charlene, you've been exploring just how well-suited this medium is to telling the ghost stories, especially of the Victorian and, and early Edwardian period. But I'm really interested in how you've been experimenting with this medium in terms of more recent projects or ongoing work you're doing with Michif language education. Could could you comment on that? For sure. So um, I'm a Métis person, and during the last uh, couple years, um, mostly through the pandemic, I've been learning the Michif language. So I took a couple university courses with Heather Suter, who if you know anything about the Michif language, you know about her. And also a program called Where Are Your Keys through Indigenous Languages Manitoba. And this program really spoke to me because it teaches you a language through sign language and gestures. So it incorporates language learning into your body because I, I think it knows that you learn you learn language through your body kind of first or at the same time as your mind and your mouth. So it it it's a really interesting way of learning language. And for me as a performer, 
it's exactly what drives me as a performer. When I'm storytelling, I use my body, I use my mind, and I use my voice. So I thought, well, these things really uh, go together. Theater and language learning is like, seems like a no-brainer to me. And so um, I was working on a project for Fringe where I had a kind of silent piece called uh, Minushito Kepashiu, which means Kitty Goes Camping. And it's a silent theater piece. And I just layered the Michif language on top. So I had a couple of narrations like, what is Kitty doing now? And, oh, that tea is too hot. Those kinds of things. And the narration was on top of the video. But inside that video, I also used cranky storytelling. So it bookended the, the, the show. I used watercolor and more color, whereas my ghost stories were um, more black and white with some shots of color for emphasis. But um, with this more whimsical uh, storytelling, it was more maybe kid-focused for that kind of audience or for beginner language learning. So it was very simple storytelling. I used a lot of watercolor and color. And what I found interesting about that was I could use front lighting and back lighting to make shadow puppets and to highlight the color. So um, there was just this really fun balance between whether I was showing straight up the front water color painting that I was doing and then also switching it in the video to a shadow puppet screen where the color kind of changed because of the backlighting and I could actually move move my characters as shadow puppets there's the static scroll with the the image and then there's actual moving characters through it so we're getting like a couple of levels of storytelling there and I um I thought that was so fun and I I would like to do do more of that particularly. Yeah. I'm really glad that we're talking about illumination and also shadow puppets because of the resonances that will have for people who are interested in your practice because they're interested in the 19th century. I'm wondering, Charlene, if you have any advice for people who might be inspired by your work to try making a very simple shoebox panorama. Do you have direction for them? Yes. All of my work that I've done with Cranky has been through experiment. Um, I didn't learn how to do it from anyone, so I had to learn everything uh, through doing it. So one of the things that I would say is to make sure you have a frame in mind. So what will the audience be seeing? How much of the screen will they be seeing? And then illustrate inside that frame so that just in case you have transitions, they're not going to end up in the way of, of your scene. So I don't know if that's, it's kind of hard to explain without showing. It would be like editing a film. So um, if you think about a film and those old uh, film reels that are kind of like in little rectangles and there's a scene for each of them, but they scroll by really fast. And if you're going to reveal something, say you're going to reveal something exciting or a ghost or something like that, it doesn't come too soon. It doesn't sit there on the side of your screen saying, I'm a ghost. And, uh, and then you're not ready to tell them that that's a ghost yet. Also, the medium that you're using. So I use parchment paper and I know that it's very hard to stick anything to parchment paper. You have to use a lot of duct tape and electrical tape and glue doesn't work because it gets rolled up in the scroll and then it gets unrolled and then all that movement makes the glue disappear and then, then it doesn't then all of your beautiful cellophane and colorful things are falling off. But if you can get past that and, and maybe you're using paper that's more adhesive or, or fabric even so you can sew something onto it, then uh, I think just don't limit yourself 
there's a lot to be discovered with this medium that I'm still discovering that is really cool. Like like light backlighting and front lighting and how you can change the picture like that. And also I haven't really done this because I've, I've done some ad- adhesion to the, to the scroll, but like I think collage could be really cool. There's so many things you could do. And, and I don't think you have to be a visual artist. I think you just have to have a creative mind and, and want to do it. And I think you'll find, you'll find a way. Thank you so much, Charlene, for this conversation and inspiration. And merci pour ton temps. Marci, Nimiyoyan. The 19th century history of textiles has been a theme on our podcast. Today we pick that thread up as we welcome Drew McKevitt, a knitwear and textile designer based in both Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Petawawa, Ontario. Drew holds a master's degree in textile design from Philadelphia University, and she has extensive experience working as a knit researcher, sweater designer, garment finisher, and sample knitter. We are glad to welcome her today to talk about two art projects with links to Victorian era material culture. Hello, Drew. Hi, thanks for having me. Drew, before I ask you about your series called Specimen, Can you explain what tatting is? It's something many Victorian people knew how to do, but I've heard it's very difficult to get the hang of. Mm. Yeah, so tatting is a lace making technique where you use, there's two kinds, you can use a needle or you can use a shuttle. I use a shuttle, but essentially if you break it down, it's it's basically making small knots, like uh, double half hitch knots from macrame, if you're familiar with that, or just knots in general. You do it over a thread, a, a piece of thread. Uh, I actually am not certain that I do tatting exactly correctly. I kind of do it in my way that works for me, but I think what can be difficult about it is with shuttle tatting, there's kind of a flick motion where you sort of throw almost throw the shuttle a little bit. Now, I actually don't really do that, but you have to kind of turn the shuttle and the knot. And I think that that can be tricky. But it is, it's a fun uh, lace making technique, though, because it is very repetitive. You have two, essentially just two knots, and then like a pico, like which is just sort of holding the knot, making a, a small little loop instead of having it fully closed. So it's basically two movements. So once you kind of get the hang of it, it can be a very fun pastime. Maybe we could talk then about specimen with that in mind. Can you tell us about that project and perhaps describe some of the pieces in it? Sure. So this is a personal project that I started uh, maybe in 2018, where I pick, I, I like to go for walks a lot in nature, and I pick up little twigs and, and interesting specimen things I find on the ground. And I was learning to tat at that time. And I sort of just, I don't know why I started doing it, but I started to tat around these dried objects. And the process was just really fascinating to me because you're working with something that's so brittle and you're making these tiny little knots around it and you're creating lace around it. And you need to be so delicate to kind of balance that and kind of move with, you know, I'm holding it sometimes in strange ways to preserve the the object from being broken, but also to work with it. 
essentially they are kind of twigs and then I've done this really organic tatting around each one. That's where tat like tatting traditionally is very patterned and it's beautiful. It's a lot of repeating motifs and it's a lot of counting. And with this, I wanted to be really organic about it. I wanted to be really intuitive and decide when and where I would turn and when and where I would close holes. And I find for me, I actually really like counting when I make stuff like that's that monotony is sort of part of it. And that's what makes it relaxing. So when I take that out, I still end up counting, but I'm not counting for any purpose. I'm just counting because that's relaxing. But what I find is like, you're trying to be intuitive about it. You're I'm super present in that making process. Like I'm not really zoned out. It's meditative, but it's also focused. I'm making decisions constantly about, you know, the overall shape and how where I think this is going. And so I don't like to take things out. I don't like to think about there being mistakes. So I just keep going. But yeah, that's kind of that sort of sums it up. I think I've really enjoyed it because I feel like it's an they're they're strange to me, you know, they're frivolous, they kind of have no useful purpose in a way. But then in another way, they're very autobiographical. Yeah, they, there's something about the, the practice of making them and then having this artifact, this combination of human and natural attempting to coexist. I feel like that's kind of Victorian in a way, because the Victorians had, and I'm I'm very inspired by Victorian lace making, uh, even before I started doing this. But yeah, their relationship with nature is so strange and bizarre. You know, they're, I feel like they were constantly trying to ignore nature or tame nature, but at the same time, extremely inspired by nature and reveling in nature. They had a complicated, well, I guess a complicated relationship with a lot of things, but with nature is one of those. Like the cabinet of curiosities, the, this idea I find fascinating. And that's kind of leading from specimen sort of started with that idea of collecting all these little pieces. We're making a big ask of our, our listeners' visual imaginations here. Maybe a little pine cone has been left behind on, on a fallen piece of branch. And you've, you've surrounded them. You've, we could say, embellished them with these tatted designs, which are in their own way very organic. But what I thought we should talk about is the display. You present these pieces in ways that evoke the collection of natural specimens, you know, beetles and butterflies on pins mounted in cases. But your project is also very different. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, I just, well, that, I mean, that was sort of a conscious choice to reference that sort of way of display with the pins. But it also just made so much sense with the pieces themselves, because they're made out of this really thin cotton thread that's like barely, a, I mean, the lace is so fragile. It, there, it would have been bizarre to display them another way. But yeah, it definitely pulls back to that, that sort of si older scientific almost. And of course, they're really not scientific at all. So I do like that contradiction a lot. I think that's interesting. Maybe we could talk, Drew, about the way in which many of your designs are influenced by things that that spiders or ants or birds make. I find your reimagining of the natural specimen collection really evocative, partly for those reasons. 
And I'm thinking about nature as an inspiration for you, not just the found object that you have incorporated into your own work, but also those patterns in nature. Yeah, I just found that find that fascinating. When I was studying textile design at Philadelphia University, I really got into the well, textiles is so much about motifs and repeating motifs. I mean, this in, you know, you can say that about tatting too. It's about repeating these knots. It's always about repeating. But then when you look at nature, you do see a repetition, but you see it repeating kind of irregularly. And I find that really interesting. And and I like the idea of trying to bring that into textile design at large to sort of challenge that idea of a motif and what things can repeat. So that's been, yeah, that's been quite inspiring for me. And it, and then you were saying about like the animals and the spiders and birds, they they are textile makers themselves. And I feel like that's really interesting too. And you look at spider webs up close, stare at them for a while, and they really do, they, they're very interesting and they do repeat, but they don't repeat regularly because maybe the spider got confused or what got distracted and did something else for a moment and didn't extend that, like the silk as long as they needed to or, or too short. So I find that that's kind of an interesting starting point for designing as well, like taking inspiration from what is working. And of course, they're using these textile techniques, if you want to call it, to create to create homes or for survival, which is also interesting. Yeah, as I make art, I don't always have sort of a point that I want to say, but more things that I want that I'm interested in that I want to explore. Drew, could we talk a little bit about a second series you're working on right now titled Unlaced? You share on your website that with this work you have and I'm quoting you here, robbed lace of its desire to be a doily, end quote. And I love that. Could you please tell us more? Yeah, um, I wanted, to, with these pieces, I kind of wanted to explore the different lace making techniques, but with unconventional materials, and sort of challenge not really the definition of lace, but yes, but also kind of more connotations of lace, as we think of lace as being really fragile, and often one of a kind, even though I mean, it's not it doesn't need to be but I wanted to kind of play with that idea. So a lot of so I incorporated materials like PVC, or resin, like plastics, copper wire. So kind of taking that fragility away, if you like cast lace in resin, you know, now it's plastic, and that's like ubiquitous. And that's not really lace, is it? Is It's not one of a kind and it's not fragile. So when does it stop becoming lace? So I did do some tatting with PVC, which was interesting and quite difficult, but the results are really intriguing. Like they, they're still looking very fragile, but when you feel the tactile nature of them is so sturdy and durable and hardly what you would expect from that kind of open work. Uh, that That's sort of what that project was about. Drew, before I let you get back to all the work I can see surrounding you in your studio, I'll just recommend that listeners explore your work further by visiting your website, drewmckevitt.com, and we have a link waiting for listeners on our podcast page. Thank you so much, Drew. I'm fascinated by the textures and shapes you create with your work, and it's been a real treat to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me.
Cosland is an assistant professor of English literature at Ghent University in Belgium. She's also an award-winning food writer interested in the intersections between food, literature, and history. Her first cookbook, The Botanical Kitchen, was published in 2020. Ellie has kindly agreed to join me to talk about a rather unassuming but storied spice, namely nutmeg. Welcome, Ellie. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Ellie, many listeners are likely glad to have a little tin of ground nutmeg or perhaps a whole nutmeg or two in their pantry. I know I am. I think it's unlikely, though, that many of us know or appreciate this spice quite like you do. To begin, can I ask you about how nutmeg was used in Victorian era kitchens? Yeah, so one of the things that I find interesting about nutmeg, sort of generally in, in cooking, but uh, but certainly in the Victorian kitchen, is that it's, it's a bit of a paradox because nutmeg is quite a strong flavor in many ways. You know, it's it's pretty pungent. You don't need a you don't need a lot. You know, a little goes a long way. But as far as I can see from the research I've done, the Victorians add it to everything. You know, I mean, not not lit. I want to say literally everything. Maybe not literally, but pretty much everything. Um, so if you look at, for example, uh, cookbooks from Eliza Acton or Mrs. Beaton, you'll see nutmeg added to everything from meat dishes through to custards through to tarts it's even used in drinks there's some sometimes it's diluted with a bit of lemon and sugar but it's 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 really used in everything almost like you would use salt and peppers and it's often used in in combination with other spices like for example cinnamon and ginger but in a way that is you know it's very liberal and it's interesting because now i think we tend to use nutmeg in isolation certainly in quite a few traditional British recipes, other than the ones that use what we would call mixed spice. You might put nutmeg in like a custard tart, for example, just a little bit to bring out the flavor of the custard, but you wouldn't then be throwing cinnamon ginger in there as well. So it's really interesting that it kind of forms a background flavor in many ways in Victorian dishes, rather than being the, the sort of center stage, I suppose. Can we talk about how nutmeg made its way into Victorian area kitchens, to, to British kitchens specifically? What about the trade in nutmeg? So the, I mean, so I should qualify. I'm not a, I'm not a historian or, a, or even a food historian, but uh, from the the kind of the research I've done, and there are there are excellent books available on uh, on the history of spices, incidentally. Um, so originally it was brought to Europe, if I'm right about this, by Venetian traders. And so it sort of worked its way up from Southern Europe into Britain, where it was like, like a lot of spices. Uh, it's being used as early as medieval times. And it's very, very expensive. And it's a real status symbol. Um, and it, it would often be used a bit like in Victorian kitchens, actually, with, for example, cinnamon, ginger, other spices. It had a maybe we'll talk about this later but it had a huge supposed huge range of health benefits it was used among other things to improve the taste of ale which you know was commonly drunk instead of water uh, when water wasn't safe to drink so yeah it, it made its way into into british cuisine quite early and then i suppose you could argue its use sort of amplified or exploded with the the trading of or at least the the cultivation of nutmeg in Indonesia, which was originally discovered, as far as I know, by the Portuguese, and then fought over between the, the British and the Dutch uh, in some quite kind of bloody battles. And the Dutch were also 
responsible for sort of some yeah quite atrocious actions against the the Indonesian population, and so it, it became I think I suppose it really hit its stride as it were in the in the sort of 18th and 19th centuries where it became more accessible thanks to increasing trade, but also the British who managed to smuggle some nutmeg out of Indonesia and started planting it in, for example, what was then Ceylon, Sri Lanka, also Singapore. Uh, I think they also took it to the Caribbean, as far as I know. So yeah, it has a, it has a very, it's, it's got a very interesting history, but it's been, been used in British cuisine for a long time. That's great to know. Thank you. So I grated nutmeg on my porridge this morning with some inspiration from the botanical kitchen. And I used a, a standard modern grater, the same thing I use for ginger, uh, for garlic. But 19th century and also I think 18th century nutmeg graters have stories to tell. Could we talk a little bit about nutmeg graters? Yeah, absolutely. So if you if you Google nutmeg grater, you you know you might find some some modern implements along the lines of the ones you've been describing. But actually, there's also a, a kind of thriving trade in antique nutmeg graters because yeah as you say in the i think yeah as early as the 18th century and certainly into the 19th century nutmeg graters were were a real status symbol so because nutmeg was still very expensive you know at one point nutmeg was worth more than gold i should point out it was the nutmeg was um if you compare what it was worth uh, back in the day i guess around the 18th century in indonesia versus what it could be then sold for once it got back to England, the price hike or the price increase was something like, I think it was 60,000%. There was a lot of um, illicit trading by sailors on trade ships coming back from from, um, the Banda Islands, which is where it was originally grown. You know, if they could pocket a couple of nutmegs, you have a pretty good life. Anyway, so, so with nutmeg being seen as a sort of status symbol, because only the rich could afford to have it, there became a sort of tradition of mostly men who would walk around with these kind of conspicuous nutmeg graters in their pockets the the idea being that if they were out and about at a restaurant or um i suppose also at a, at a kind of pub or a tavern they could grate a little bit of nutmeg into their food or even their drink to season it i mean i would question whether this was actually necessary as a seasoning i think it probably had much more power as a status symbol because to carry a nutmeg grater and its associated nutmeg meant that you were well off and, and, you know, gave, gave rise to a, some quite innovative uh, designs for nutmeg graters. So at one point they were, they became mechanized, I think, in the, around the middle of the 19th century, um, also for the American markets. And you can see some really elaborate designs. And some of them are also incredibly beautiful. So uh, often they were made out of silver. Sometimes they were carved in the shape of a nutmeg. And actually, they often pop up on these kind of these forums where people write to antiques dealers sort of saying, oh, I have this object. What on earth is it? And it's often, you know, it turns out to be a nutmeg grater because there's, there's something that, you know, we don't really use anymore. So they, they look a little bit alien. I've seen some online, as you suggest, we take a look there, Ellie, that look like beautiful silver acorns, which are very charming. I can't think of nutmeg graters without thinking of David Copperfield's description of his nurse Peggotty's roughened fingers as feeling like a pocket nutmeg grater. That was probably my first encounter with the grater that is designated for use with nutmeg. Ellie, you share a really lovely essay about nutmeg at the start of the Botanical Kitchen, and I'll direct listeners there for a wonderful account of how nutmeg has featured in your travels. I'm wondering if I could ask you how your research on Victorian literature and eco-criticism have shaped your work as a cookbook author and food writer, or 
Perhaps it's recipe writing and food writing that have, have shaped your scholarship. Yeah, thank you. That's a, that's a good question. I think, yeah, I think one of the things that I suppose I'm most interested in when it comes to food and literature. So I, I don't work so much ex directly on food and literature in my academic life. I think because it's such a big part of my non-academic life that I feel that I need to keep them separate to some extent. But I think one of the things that I find really interesting about food and literature is that it often functions as, as kind of a, a metaphorical or symbolic currency of sorts. So references to food are so often loaded with, with meaning. Um, they tell us you know, they tell us so much about a character's social standing, about their class. You know, for example, the, the Dickensian reference to nutmeg graters, I think there's another one in Great Expectations, as far as I remember. So I think that is something that, that I'm really interested in. And also, it, touching on the eco-critical aspect, looking at food as a way into ideas about more complex sort of ecosystems, I suppose, whether we're talking about biological, ecological ecosystems, or actually sort of social ecosystems, if that makes sense, social networks, what I, what I think is sometimes called food ways in, in literature. So I think trying to kind of untangle those links between how food is actually represented in a text and also what it is being used to signify and also the kind of intertextuality of food. You know, when we, we talk about a particular ingredient or a particular dish, we're very often invoking a whole load of symbolic cultural associations with that food, like nutmeg, for example. So to talk about someone eating a dish featuring nutmeg in a text, for example, might signal status, but it might also, it's tapping into a whole historical background that is being, yeah, being signaled through that one dish. So I find that fascinating. And that's something that when I write about food and I think about food, I try and think about its place, the place it has taken in our, our kind of cultural and imaginative landscape over the years. I, I think book lovers will enjoy your book as much as food lovers will, Ellie, for those, those reasons. If listeners are inspired by what you've shared today to take the nutmeg down from their pantry shelf, what do you suggest they do with it, Ellie? Do you have any ideas? Yes, so funnily enough, you talked about porridge earlier, and that's actually one of, I mean, I'll, I'll go on to say it's not just porridge in a second, but but this is one of my favorite ways to eat nutmeg because it, you know, I was saying earlier, nutmeg is so often used in combination with other spices, but actually one of my favorite ways is to eat it is in a way that keeps its flavor kind of pure uh, and undiluted. And it works so well with milky things, with with dairy, or actually porridge made with, for example, oat milk, but any, any kind of dairy, whether that's animal dairy or plant-based dairy. So my favorite way to have it is just to make a bowl of porridge. So, you know, that's oats in a pan, preferably the, the thick cut oats, not the, the rolled oats. Milk of whatever kind you prefer. I use oat milk, kind of oat, oats on oats, but it works. Pinch of salt. Uh, sometimes I use, you know, half milk, half water, bring it to the boil, you know, stir it until it's, until it's porridge con consistency. But then I like to add chopped pears, dried cranberries, maple syrup at the end, a, a drizzle of maple syrup, and then a very healthy grating of nutmeg just over the top. Or sometimes I add it into the porridge as well and then over the top because it works so well with pears. It works so well with maple syrup, that kind of caramel toastiness. And it works really well with the, the kind of creamy oats. And it really lets the nutmeg flavor come to the fore, I think. It's very simple, but that's probably my favorite way to, to do it. I think if I were going to go a bit more elaborate and, and cook something more involved, it would probably be a 
not a custard tart exactly because I'm not a huge fan of custard but there is a lovely variation on a custard tart in my book it just happens to be in my book I'm not, I'm not trying to plug the book too much here but it's called a Yorkshire curd tart and this is a really good example I think of some traditional British recipes that have fallen by the wayside a little bit it's something that is pretty common in Yorkshire um, if uh, you know listeners might know of Betty's tea rooms in Yorkshire which are which are um, it's, a, it's a chain of I think three or four tea rooms known for their sort of very proper way of serving afternoon tea and their lovely cakes and they do a really good Yorkshire curd tart but you can also find it in other bakeries and it's I I, I love it because it, it kind of goes back to that what I always think of as quite a medieval tradition of using a lot of spices and dried fruit so it's basically a pastry case and then the filling is curd cheese which is you know somewhere between kind of cottage cheese and ricotta I suppose it's quite a dry fresh cheese doesn't really have a whole lot of flavor and that's mixed with some eggs sugar and currants which again are not used so much these days but we use a lot in traditional british cookery and then spices so a little bit of ginger a little bit of cinnamon and i think a little bit more nutmeg than the other two and it's it bakes to a lovely it's almost like a cheesecake in a crust and it's you know it's not too sweet it's got a little bit of citrus works really well with the nutmeg and it's another great yeah great vehicle for nutmeg Oh, I believe it would be. I am inspired. Thank you so much, Ellie. We really appreciate your time. It's been lovely chatting with you. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. It's been a treat to hear from Ellie McCausland, Drew McKevitt, and Charlene Van Buchenhout. I've been dedicating some spare time in recent months to learning how to make bobbin lace with the hope of getting good enough to follow some Victorian era patterns. While I spend as much time undoing my work as I do making lace, I relate very much to what Drew shared about the calming effects of making and the comfort she finds in repetition. And speaking of making, this podcast is the co-creation of Anne Hung, Jesse Cron, Natalie Lovetri, Lucy Von Schilling, and me, Vanessa Warren. We do our work on the territory of the Lungkwangan and Sinchothan-speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples, and on Treaty 1 territory, traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. Learn more about the Crafting Communities Project by visiting craftingcommunities.net or by following us on Instagram at crafty underscore Victorians. You can email us at craftyvictorians at gmail.com and you can follow us on Twitter at craftyvictorian. The Crafting Communities Project is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. Crafting Communities is a collaboration between Andrew Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>